Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, chat, Mike, chat. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Word up. It's that biblical, biblical theology, theology study of the person of God. Attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics. And Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone, they give some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes. So clever we behold his endeavors unfold. The greatest story ever told. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction yeah. and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our reflections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our death, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology. Welcome to another edition of Theology Matters and... Boy, are we excited for this show we have for you guys today. We are going to be looking at the topic of Scientology. And uh, for those who probably have been 
keeping uh, up to date, uh, A&E has been doing a new show with uh, Leah Remini, who is a pretty well-known um, actor, and uh, you probably saw her on uh, The King of Queens and some other shows, <clears throat> and at one time she was a very very staunch defender of Scientology, and uh, over the last uh, two or three years, uh, I believe, uh, has really made a public, um, you know, split with Scientology, and uh, it's got pretty ugly, <clears throat> and uh, they are doing a show right now where she is uh, really looking at some of the in-depth uh, beliefs, as well as some of the abuses, and practices of Scientology. So I think the issue is important because, um, you know, we probably don't know a lot of Scientologists or haven't met a lot of Scientologists, but uh, this is, uh, this has really gained a lot of traction, uh, this particular show that Miss Remini is doing. And so I think it will uh, open the doors for us to uh, talk about the, the gospel uh, whether it's at work or you know what it, wherever wherever it may be, uh, there's a lot of opportunities for uh, being able to talk about worldview issues. Uh, you know where did we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going when we die? These are important questions, uh, worldview uh, questions. And so um, this I think will will be a good opportunity for Christians to use some of what's going on in the culture in order to have these conversations that point back to uh, ultimately the things that, that really matter the most, and that is uh, these worldview issues. So we will be having uh, my good friend Don Deal, who will uh, be joining us within the next uh, 20, 25 minutes or so, so stick with us for that. Um, if you have not liked us on Facebook yet, we want to go ahead and get that little shout out there. Uh, you can go to facebook.com slash theology matters with the Palouz. Uh, we don't really have a website uh, for theology matters. We do a lot of things through through Facebook. Um, the show, of course, uh, through Blog Talk, uh, True Radio uh, is our is kind of our our sponsor. So we're on that network. <clears throat> so you, um, you can go to the Blog Talk and then uh, just find Theology Matters or like I say, we, we really have a pretty good archive of shows. We've been doing this show for about four years now and uh, have tackled all kinds of, of topics and issues. Uh, so you can find a lot of our past shows uh, on Facebook. Uh, and that is if you go to facebook.com slash Theology Matters with the Palouse. Um, if you have uh, or if you are aware of any apologetic or theological or any interesting conferences or anything going on in your area, uh, something that you may find useful uh, or think it would be useful for people in your area to attend, let us know. And uh, we'll gladly gladly put it on the air, let people know about it. Um, just message us at, our, at the Facebook page at uh, Theology Matters with Plus, and uh, we'll get you, we will get you, uh, get your announcement out there and let people uh, know about that. So we, let's see, we've got a, got a, a few minutes here. I uh, just wanted to talk briefly. Uh, we had a good friend 
um, one of my good friends, Jonathan McClatchy, uh from the United Kingdom, uh, came over to America and uh, had to go to a, a couple of friends' weddings. And while he was here, uh, we were able to shoot a couple of interviews uh, with Theology Matters. You'll see those on our Facebook page. Uh, but also was able to have uh, a really good event that we hosted at my house uh, for uh, Ratio Christi, which uh, I'm a uh, chapter director out here for Win- at Winthrop University. And so we were able to do kind of a special evening with, with Jonathan McClatchy and had uh, several of our students and uh, a few professors and a few friends from local churches and uh it was a pretty good turnout, pretty pretty packed little house, and uh, uh, just kind of gathered around and got to pick Jonathan's brain. And uh, one of the one of the issues that uh, Jonathan is really good at, uh, he's he's actually he's really good at a lot of things, uh, folks. He's <clears throat> he's an expert in intelligent design. Uh, I believe he's got two two master's degrees in biology. I think he's working on his PhD in like cellular biology or something like that. Um, he's done a lot of uh, the interns with the Discovery Institute. Um, but he also does a lot of apologetics with Muslims. Now, in America, we don't really probably, at least in certain certain spots, uh, I, you know, I know there's some spots that are, you know, more heaven, have, have heavily uh, Muslim populated. For example, Michigan and some of those areas have more mosques or New York or something like that. Uh, it's going to have, you know, more mosques than that than, uh, than like where I'm at in the South, for example. Uh, and so in the UK, uh, Islam is pretty big. And they have a pretty big presence. And one of the things that I've noticed with a lot of the Muslims that I have met in America, um, they do a, uh, a special little ecumenical, um, I don't know if you'd call it a dinner or a, a meeting that they do once a month with uh, Orthodox Jews, Muslims, and Christians. And they're all very much of pretty much the liberal slant. And so <clears throat> the idea is, you know, we have our different traditions and different beliefs uh, regarding, you know, the scriptures. But um, ultimately, you know, nobody's wrong or uh, there's, there's not necessarily an ultimate truth, you know, or I should say objective truth. For example, you'd never see uh, one of the leaders, you know, at least publicly saying that the other people's, you know, are wrong. Uh, and so a lot of the a lot of the Muslims that I have met in America are very liberal in in their views. They they uh, would say that you know you could add Jesus to you know your view of God and it wouldn't be a problem. But where Jonathan's at in the UK. Um, the Muslims there are more orthodox, and uh, they take a stronger stand and would say, you know, that uh, being a Christian is uh, a surefire way, no pun intended, uh, to end up in hell, because Jesus, uh, uh, Christians believe, is God. And to assign deity 
to anyone other than than the Father or Allah, in their view, uh, is you know one of the ultimate sins of blasphemy, and so they fight for these doctrines. They argue about these doctrines. They defend their doctrines. I have a place called Speaker's Corner, where he's at, where you will have uh, Muslim apologists and Christians. Uh, go out there and they have these uh, debates and discussions on uh, things like the doctrine of the Trinity uh, and the resurrection of, of Christ. Uh, so theology really does really does matter. So we're you know in an era in America where maybe theology or I should say um, Islam is not a massive threat right now, though there are some places where that is being uh, infiltrated. But Christians need to know uh, about these issues because we're gonna we're gonna start running in to more and more Muslims. And as as Christians, uh, you know, our mandate is to be able to share the gospel uh, effectively. <clears throat> so this is these are some of the things that Jonathan talked about. Uh, on Tuesday night, the need to to be able to defend the doctrine of the Trinity, the need to be able to defend uh, the reliability of the Bible and the inerrancy of the Scriptures. Um, that those are those are very important uh, matters that we need to be able to defend, and something that we have to go back to year in and year out uh, and fight for uh, consistently. Um, Good theology and good apologetic training breeds evangelism uh, because we don't want to keep it in the four walls. We want to get out. We want to tell people about it. When you really love Christ and you you see what he's done uh, for the church and for his people, um, you want to get out and you want to tell people about it. And apologetics is a means and is a way to be able to have some of these conversations. You know, when we we talk with, with our students all the time. Um, and when they first come in, generally they're, they're pretty nervous and, um, don't want to, um, you know, necessarily share the faith and, and go do a lot of evangelism. Uh, but once they get a good taste of apologetics and they see that the Christian faith, uh, is something that can be defended and defended well, they want to go out and they want to uh, share the gospel with their friends and they want to uh, demonstrate to people that the Bible really is true and that the Bible really is the word of God. Before they get that training, they're not. They don't want to do it. Uh, I think, uh, and we'll, we'll talk to Don about this because Don is uh, he's the director of, of Worldview and, and Evangelism uh, with Dr. Geisler at his ministry, who's uh, most of you guys know he's kind of my hero of the faith, Dr. Geisler. Uh, but, uh, you know, Don will, Don will talk a little bit about this as well. Um, it gives you, when you have some theological training, when you have some, uh, you know, a little bit of um, understanding, you want to be able to engage in these conversations. Most people won't because they don't know how to defend the faith. And are scared they're going to get asked questions that they don't know. And, you know, if we're honest, folks, it's an indictment really on, on the church. Uh, you know, I don't I don't know where, where you folks go to church, but, you know, I can tell you, growing up, I never heard sermons on the doctrine of the Trinity. 
I never heard sermons on, you know, the doctrine of justification. I never, uh, never really saw any type of apologetics growing up for reasons to believe that, for example, that the creation story was true or that Noah's flood was true or, or any of those things. And so, you know, when the church gives up on those things, and they don't do evangelism, and they don't do apologetics, and they don't do sound theology. Um, it's just it becomes weak, uh, and it becomes anemic, and people generally don't evangelize when that happens because uh, they don't know how. They don't know what to say. But when you give them that foundation, it's it's really incredible to see uh, how bold that they really are to get out there and, and share the faith. So we're going to be talking about that uh, a little bit today. We're going to have Don come on. We're going to talk about Scientologists and uh, that. We need to go ahead and take a quick break, but we will be back, and we're going to continue this uh, conversation. Thank you guys so much uh, for joining us. It's a cold, cold day out here in uh, South Carolina where I'm at. Let me check the temperature here really quick. Last I heard, it was supposed to get down to like the, the 20s or something like that uh, tonight. So it's definitely got that uh, definitely got that Christmas feel. Uh, it's supposed to get down to 19 degrees tonight. So uh, that, that is good with me. I enjoy the Christmas season. So uh, stay with us, folks. We will be right back after this. Having talked about expositional preaching, I don't want people to think it doesn't matter what you're actually saying. That the only thing that matters is that you're opening the Bible, reading it, and claiming you're explaining it. No, I want to kind of nail down the product as well. I want to make sure that what you're saying is actually consistent with what is in the Bible. Because the Bible has very specific content. God speaks through his word to reveal himself to us. And that means we can get it wrong. So in our preaching and in our teaching in our churches, we want to make sure and get it right. The term biblical theology can be used in two ways, either theology that's biblical, some people sometimes call systematic theology, or uh, biblical theology, which is a, a method of studying the scriptures as one story culminating in the person work of Christ. God has revealed himself progressively through scripture. So there's a picture being built up through thousands of years of God's interaction with his people, culminating in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and seeing how all God's purposes come together and focus in Christ. It's as we have a sense of the, of the whole of Scripture that we're able to rightly then sort of divide and apply the parts of Scripture and to live more consistently uh, in God's will and uh, to live more consistently uh, by His grace. I think it's extremely important for pastors to know how the entire story of the Bible fits together. So that any particular text that they're looking at, uh, they not only understand that the immediate meaning of that text, they understand how it fits into the whole. That prevents us from, from doing all sorts of terrible things to Scripture, like ripping things out of context, misapplying, um, making false promises. So biblical theology is understanding these great themes through the Scripture that God has developed in history. Uh, through the history of Israel and then in the New Testament and the ministry of Jesus and by the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the apostles that's recorded in the rest of the New Testament and teaching those things clearly in our, our preaching and believing them ourselves.
My name is Scott Klusendorf. I'm the president of Life Training Institute, and I'm a guest lecturer in bioethics at Biola University. The Case for Life was written to express to the believer in Jesus Christ that he or she can make a defense for what they believe on the pro-life issue without offending people, by being gracious, and yet at the same time bringing solid logic and argumentation to the debate so that unbelievers look at the Christian at that point and go, wow, Christianity has something relevant to say on a crucial moral issue of our day. Maybe, just maybe, it has something relevant to say on other big issues as well. Because once you start talking about the ultimate questions, like do humans have value for what they are or what they can do? Is truth real and knowable or is it just a preference like choosing ice cream? Once you bring those questions to the table, it's a real short journey over to the other questions over here, which have to do with how do we get right with our maker? How do I as an individual get my, my life in line with the creator of the universe. It's a nice bridge right into talking to people on evangelistic topics. All right, folks, we are back and we are having a little conversation about the need for evangelism, the relationship between evangelism and apologetics and, and pr proclaiming the gospel. Um, I think... You know, I think everybody agrees that we need to share the gospel. I think that's one of the things that's, that is very important. Um, sometimes there's differences <clears throat> in the method of how we do that. Um, working on the, on the campus, uh, I run into different uh, campus ministers and ministries, and, you know, people have different ideas. Uh, there are a lot of people that think, um, you know, you just uh, you just preach the gospel. You don't get bogged down in the weeds. Uh, you don't get bogged down in dealing with people's objections. And I've I've heard uh, <clears throat> I've heard those kind of trainings with the college students where they will say things like, uh, you know, don't don't sit and, and argue or debate or don't get uh, into the weeds with the objections, uh, just kind of bypass the, the head and go right to the heart. And uh, it always irritates me when I hear that, because as, as Christians, we are to uh, love people uh, because they're made in, in the image of God. They're reasonable people, Right, we shouldn't, uh, or, or at least we should give them that benefit of the doubt until they show otherwise that they're not being reasonable. <clears throat> but if they have objections, we need to answer it. We don't just uh, determine for them, oh, that's not important for you, and then move on and talk about what we want to talk about. That's not treating them like they're made in the image of God. That's not um, being being very respectful to them. Now, granted, you have skeptics that, uh, you know, for every question you answer, uh, they're going to bring up another 15 questions. <laughs> well, obviously, uh, you know, if, if people are doing that, then you have to use discernment. But I can tell you, as I've done so much work on, on the campus, that a lot of times it is, <clears throat> in fact, most of the time, it is uh, false caricatures of what Christianity is, is, you know, what they've been taught, uh, 
They'll have a false view of the Trinity, a false view of the Bible, a false view of Jesus. And if you can just talk with them, talk through some of these issues, um, remove the misconceptions, put in you know, the real deal. Uh, I'm not saying they immediately convert, but at least they have a, a better understanding of what it is we, you know, we truly believe. And so it's worth taking the time. It's worth investing the time in, in talking with people <clears throat> about, these, about these topics. Uh, we've been having some Jehovah's Witnesses come over for the last um, probably three months, and yeah, it's been a great time of conversation, a great time of of opening the the scriptures and uh, you know wrestling over some of these issues. And uh, I'm telling you, it wouldn't it would not have been any benefit to just say, "Oh, I'm a Christian," and shut the door in their face. I feel like by uh, having them come in and they know, you know, they know what we believe. Uh, it's not like I, you know, I hide that we're Christians or something. We tell them what we believe, but still invite them to come in for that conversation. You don't know how God will work. You don't know how God can use that. Uh, and so that's why we do uh, really what we do with this show, Theology Matters. And so we're going to bring Don on the show here in a minute. We're going to look at the issue of Scientology. And uh, I know a lot of people think what's what's the the purpose in that. There's not a lot of necessarily maybe not a lot of people that believe in Scientology, or maybe you think, oh, I don't know anybody that believes in Scientology's Scientology. But these issues are are very important. So we need to look at them, look at the origin, look at the history, uh, etc and uh, dive a little deeper into this. We're going to take a quick break before we transition, and then we will bring Don on to look at this issue of Scientology. We're going to be taking your phone calls. We're going to go, uh, open up the phone line at 7 o'clock and uh, give the number out for that real quick, 760-542-3907. 760-542-3907. Again, we're going to open the phone, call, phone line at 7 o'clock. Uh, if you would like to call, ask Don a question, we would love to hear from you. We're going to take a short break and be right back after this. What is something that computers and humans have in common, which constantly needs upgrading in computers, but not in humans? The answer is software. You may not have realized you have software, but inside the nucleus of each of your cells, a program is written in the form of 3 billion DNA letters. Intelligent programmers write computer software, but what about living things? Evolutionists tell us that the information in the first living cell just appeared by itself with no intelligent input required. But is that possible? The answer is a resounding no. Even one of Australia's best-known scientists, Paul Davies, conceded that there is no known law of physics able to create information from nothing. And perhaps that's why, in a New Scientist article, he lamented, how did stupid atoms spontaneously write their own software? Nobody knows. To find out more from Creation Ministries International, visit our website, creation.com. I just want to start off by saying that this was not a tempest in a teapot. Chiseled into the stone of the Reformation wall are the Latin words post tenebras lux, after darkness, light. Luther was convinced that the gospel itself had fallen into darkness 
and obscurity in the late Middle Ages. The Reformation, from his perspective, was the recapturing and recovering of nothing less than the gospel itself. The gospel is so plain in Scripture that a child can understand it. If you don't have the doctrine of justification by faith alone, you don't have the gospel. And if you don't have the gospel, the church has no reason to exist. The church itself ceases to be a church and falls into apostasy. But beyond the general ecclesiastical application there, Luther by extension would be saying that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the article upon which you stand or fall, the article upon which I stand or fall. Again, why? Because it is the article that answers the question, what must I do to be saved? All right, folks, welcome back to Theology Matters with the Police, and today we're going to be looking at the issue of Scientology. So let me go ahead and introduce our guest. Uh, Don Deal is the Director of Worldview and Evangelism at Apologetics for Norm Geisler International Ministries. Uh, he has a Master's Degree in Biblical Theological Studies from Luther Rice and a Master. Uh, of Arts and Christian Apologetics from Southern Evangelical Seminary here in the Charlotte area. Uh, and he is pursuing a Ph.D. with Northwest University in South Africa and uh, really is a, a great friend uh, to us. So, Tom, are you there, my friend? I am here. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear me Okay. Yeah, I hear you just fine. I hear you just fine. Uh, good good to be here with you tonight, Devin. Yes, always good to hook up with you. One of my one of my favorite people. <laughs> uh should, should I bring something to drink or are you thirsty? <laughs> yeah. I use a little iced tea. <laughs> when Who there can? was uh there was a, a backstory to that, folks. There was one day we were at the at the uh Ratio Christi symposium and uh it was so hot in that room, and I hadn't drinking anything all day. And uh, so Don graciously offered to uh, grab me uh, something to drink, and he came back with like three iced teas, and uh, I drank them all and sent them back for like another tray. And uh, I don't know how many, <laughs> how many times. Well, you were contributing to my back. fitness level. <laughs> yeah, so that's our, that's our running joke every time we see each other. But uh, now, Don, oh, yeah. do you do stuff with uh, Reasons to Believe as well? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm a volunteer apologist with Reasons to Believe, and uh, uh, I've been working with them for several years. So I do science apologetics. Uh, I work with Dr. Mark Gabriel, the former Muslim scholar. And so I do Islamic apologetics, and I do uh, work with a team from SES, and I'm the director of research and development at Norm Geisler International Ministry. So I, uh, and, and I work. So I stay busy. Wow. <laughs> Do it all. Um, how, how did you get into apologetics? Uh, that's an interesting story. I, I was saved when I was 16 years old. I was raised in a uh, secular household, to put it nicely. Uh, and uh, when I was 16, I met a gentleman in a gym uh, who, through Bible study, eventually led me to the Lord. And I, when I get to college, I took my first 
psychology class and the psych the psych professor or not psychology I'm sorry philosophy course and the philosophy professor was a evangelical atheist he believed he should convert everybody to atheism and uh so I left that class not not as an atheist but as someone who began to question whether you could be a thinker and a christian at the same time because he made it out that uh Christians were the simpletons of the world and the gullibles and the such, and so I kind of left the faith, joined the Navy, was a Navy pilot for ten and a half years, partying, uh, chasing everything around in the world and all that stuff the world says will make you happy, and it was empty. Uh, I got back into the church in my mid-30s and uh, began to wonder if if there was any more to the faith than I was hearing in the pulpit. Could Could it go deeper? And so I began to do a little research, and not too long after that, a pair of gentlemen knocked on the door and said, uh, we're Elder so-and-so, and and we're here to uh, announce the restored gospel of Joseph Smith. And I thought, well, maybe the Lord sent them. And uh, I began to study what the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, known as the Mormons, uh, taught, and I decided that did not fit biblical Christianity. And then uh, later on, I get a knock on the door, and uh, these nice ladies uh, told me they were there announcing Jehovah's Kingdom of a Thousand Years. And uh, I began to research their organization, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, or the Jehovah Witnesses. And I went, no, that's not it either. Pretty sure God didn't send them. I was just fascinated with these groups. And uh, I remember I was in Cambridge, England in a hotel room. With uh, reading another yet another book on Mormons, I was just fascinated by these groups, and feeling guilty because I wasn't reading my Bible uh, that was with me as much as I sh- felt I should have. And then a uh, presence came into the room and put me face down. And uh, uh, to make a long story short, the message I got was, "This is what I want you to do." So, uh, when when the Lord comes into your life directly and and intervenes to let you know you you are to be doing apologetics you do apologetics wow yeah you don't argue with that i guess (laughs) no i can tell you you know all these people that say they want to meet god have no idea what they're talking about uh if you want to meet if you want to meet someone or some being of absolute perfection and goodness who knows your every thought of your entire life and then is in your presence, you're going to feel completely filthy, sinful, and nasty. And if you try to make it, you, you want as a human, you want to make an excuse, but you can't even get a word out before you realize how futile that is in that presence, that there's nothing you can say that there's no excuse you can make because God knows everything. And then uh, and, and then there's just – let's just say that my mind and the infinite didn't connect very well, so I just kind of laid there empty for a few moments, uh, just kind of – it's kind of hard to explain, but you can't connect the finite to the infinite directly. So as I say, when those people say they want to they want to meet God, I'm not sure they know what they're talking about. That, yeah, that is a fascinating story, Don. I, I had never heard of that. I'd never heard you, you, you speak about that. But that's Well, it's, I, know, um, I get goosebumps when I tell it because uh, I can tell you when you're laying on the floor face down with tears flowing from your eyes uh, – there's there's no excuses you can make, and it's it, like I'm getting goosebumps right now telling it because uh, you know the arguments and stuff are fine for building people's faith or tearing down the arguments of unbelievers or different believers, but 
the, when you've had the direct experience, they're they're just there as kind of a buttress during the dark times. Wow, that is awesome. I know that's uh, Sproul. Doctor Sproul always talks about the trauma of holiness and uh, just that uh, in the presence yeah, they, of God. I, I can that. tell you that. The books you read and the experience, uh, sometimes it's hard to put the two together. You understand what they're trying to communicate, but when you have the experience, you can't really communicate it. You know, that the, when the Bible says he fell as one, as a, you know, as a one dead in, in the presence, uh, that's, that's pretty much what, I, wow. that's pretty much what happens. Wow. <laughs> that is amazing. Well, how did you uh, get Yeah, I didn't to... expect it. I wasn't asking for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I'm you know we're thankful that 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 did happen because it sounds like it uh, really had a profound impact on you and has kind of put you where you are today. I have not uh, I have not spent a day since, and I don't think without studying or reading at least one thing that day. And it's well, joyful. It's not work. It's joyful when you're doing what you've been called to do. It's just it's joyful to study. It's joyful to read and learn. Amen. So when I give yeah. when I give talks on Scientology, that's uh, you know, twenty books and countless videos and articles uh, into the subject. I got the, uh, uh, you know, when people ask questions, I I can answer the questions typically on these various topics: science, Jehovah's uh, uh, Witnesses, Mormons, uh, Islam, Christian history, whatever. You know, if you do it all the time, if you study it all the time, it becomes a little bit easier. <laughs> that is true, yeah. Well, and, you know, what? What the reason I wanted to do this show uh, was because just flipping through the channels, uh, when, what, no, you know what it was? I was scrolling through Facebook, and they had an ad on there with Leah Remini. And uh, I watched this this ad, and it was, I mean, it was pretty incredible. She's She's reading all these things that the Scientologists, the Church of Scientology, uh, was saying about her about this new program. And so we watched the program, and um, it was just fascinating. And, uh, you know, yeah, they were, uh, we, they I don't were, know they, a lot about yeah, that. Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt, but uh, they, they, were, no, you're fine. they were fair game. They were fair gaming her. That would be their term. They were. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah, that that would be the traditional term which they stop using but they still practice yeah so that's you know i thought you know we need to get somebody on here that knows something about scientology and so our good friend marcia montenegro you have to give her a shout out because i know she's going to be listening and she she hooked us up so thank you for that marcia but uh, I wanted to pick pick your brain on that and so uh, i guess how did you get interested in scientology uh, I, I had kind of a, a, a vague interest in the past, but it actually started with uh, Dr. Ron Rhodes' class I took on uh, cults and modern religions, and uh, we had to pick out a group to write a paper about, and uh, I was uh, – I thought, well, let me go ahead and uh, work with these guys. This is this looks interesting, and what particularly caught my interest was – the textbook for his class on cults and modern religions had a disclaimer before that chapter, and uh, no other chapter had a legal uh, disclaimer in the front of it. So that got me interested to see what was going on. So 
that paper became the genesis of a paper I presented at the first uh, SES student academic paper conference called Soteriology in Scientology. Yeah, it's funny so you say since that. Then, since then, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, no, I was just going to say it's, it's funny you say that because I actually have that book in my hands. <laughs> I had it opened uh, to Chapter 7 there. This is Ron Rhodes' book, uh, The Challenge of the Cults and New Religions. And uh, like Don says, it's got a disclaimer. It says uh, this chapter uh, should not be construed as an attack against the right of Scientologists to believe as they choose. Uh, this chapter simply summarizes some of the central teachings of Scientology and set forth uh, in Scientology books, and then goes on a little bit to to give more of a disclaimer. But uh, man, I mean, in order to have to do that, you just know these guys must have these guys must be known as attack dogs. Uh, well. Uh... <laughs> Yeah, I, I went from a PTS to an SP quickly in their terminology. It tells you how much I've been reading their stuff because uh, uh, a PTS is a potential trouble source. That's someone who has doubts about Scientology, and a and an SP is a suppressive person, someone who actively criticizes or or uh, does not uh, toe the company line, so to speak. Wow. Well, tell us a little bit about it here. Uh, what are the origins of Scientology? How did this How did this thing start, and and uh, who was the the founder, and etc. Okay, well, I tell you what, Devin, if you want me to do it in an organized way, I could kind of follow the outline I used at the National Conference on Christian Apologetics four years ago when I gave a yeah. talk on it. That'd okay, be great, and you know we've got, got, got an hour and a half as well, or a little little less than an hour and a half, so feel free to take your time. You don't have to rush, and let's just do that. Okay. I'll start, and any, any questions that come up, please feel free to interrupt because uh, it makes for a little more personal, a little more interesting conversation, I think, than me just talking constantly for that time. Sure. Not that I don't mind. I love hearing the sound of my own voice, but uh, – <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, that's good. My wife's not here to whack me when I'm saying those things. But uh, okay, so uh, the, the the basic outline is I'll, I'll give a brief background on the life of L. Ron Hubbard, and then I'll get in just a brief a little bit into Dianetics, Scientology's history, their doctrines, some of the controversies, and some of the resources people can use to uh, 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 research more on the topic. And, and one of the things that got me interested in the topic was uh, uh, an interview between Matt Lauer and Tom Cruise on the Today Show. And this is a quote. Here's a quote from Tom Cruise. He said, Scientology is something that you don't understand. It's like you could still be a Christian. You could be a Christian and still be a Scientologist. And I thought, wow. is that true? Yeah. So you, you hear that kind of thing, and you think, is is that just a bunch of nonsense? I mean, he's a good-looking guy, but does he know what he's talking about? <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, L. Ron Hubbard was built, born in Tilden, Nebraska in, in 1911. He uh, he was raised basically out west in Montana. Uh, you can go to – there's an lronhubbard.org website where they have a biography of him, which is interesting. Because it keeps changing and shrinking as time goes by because it turns out that uh, when he told his followers what kind of life he had lived, 
uh, let's just say the evidence indicated he was not always uh, telling the truth. He sometimes had confusion between his imagination and uh, uh, and, and reality. Like he said, he was a blood brother to the uh, Blackfoot Indians, and they said they don't have any. Nobody knew anything about that. Never heard of anybody being. They didn't have any blood brothers. <laughs> Uh, they, he said he was the wow. youngest Eagle Scout in the history of Boy Scouts. Well, oh, they don't boy. have any records of the ages of Eagle Scouts. Uh, he said at one time he had a degree in nuclear physics from uh, uh, from a major university, from uh, uh, George Washington University in Washington D.C. He said he he said he was one of the first people to have a degree in nuclear physics in the U.S. Well, uh, somebody actually got hold of his transcripts, and it turns out that he dropped out of George Washington University with failing grades in all of his science subjects. He got an F in physics, but he did have passing grades in writing and rhetoric. So uh, in order to uh, – not just science fiction. Back then, he, he became a pulp fiction writer, and pulp uh, fiction, uh, wow. for people who aren't familiar with it, is uh, pulp paper is the cheapest kind of paper and so those kind of books that were printed were considered the uh, soap operas or the trash novels of the day before soap operas were on television people would buy cheap novels uh, written for people without education and such and so they were considered lowbrow entertainment and so he was a pulp fiction writer uh he wrote he's actually in the guinness book of world's records for writing the most fiction works he wrote 250 works of fiction uh, and plus his Scientology books, including science fiction, westerns, adventure yarns, uh, pirates, air novels. He wrote under five or six different names just so he could keep the money flowing. Uh, wow. the, the way his first wa- the way his first wife described him, a lady named Polly, she described him. It, it sounds like he was manic depressive, where he would go through periods of of, of inactivity and depression, followed by brief periods of tremendous energy and creativity, where he would write uh, a short story in a single night and sell it off. Uh, some of the science fiction writers who were with him in the 50s or the uh, 40s, uh, thir- late 30s and 40s, and even in the 50s uh, in New York City, told stories of how he was one. He was the first guy they knew that had an electric typewriter and that uh, he found a way to get butcher paper fed into it because back then you only had a sheet of paper at a time. And by using uh, uh, rolls of butcher paper, he could type continuously and put out and write an entire short story in a, in a single night. And uh, so when he was on, he was on and he could just come up with stuff and, and wrote a lot of books. Uh, World War II, he said he joined the Navy in World War II, got himself a commission by having an uh, endorsement from a senator. And uh, interestingly, the endorsement is written in L. Ron Hubbard's style. And when they interviewed the senator later, he told L. Ron Hubbard to write whatever the heck he wanted. He'd sign it. He didn't care, So, which explained why the senator was uh, extolling L. Ron's virtues as one of the greatest young men in the country. Uh he joined World War II, and court. This is the official. This is the Scientology record, which has since been corrected. But he said he was the first casualty of World War II in the Pacific, and he left the war with severe injuries. And this is his quote: He said he was crippled and blinded by a shell that exploded on the deck of the boat. 
He said he ended up with 21 medals and palms, but wow. he handled the injuries through his discoveries of Dianetics, which is an incredible story. Uh, he was a sailor. He was, an, he was a pilot. He was a glider pilot. <laughs> he, he, he was an amazing person without having to make up additional stuff. Uh, but uh, what happened was... He would. He was telling the uh, Scientologists these stories for years of all his exploits, and uh, one of his followers wanted to write an official biography, and he gave him. He gave the follower permission to write to the uh, uh, through the Freedom of Information Act to show the official record of which exact medals and why and the, what, what they were for, and uh, it turned out that Elon Hubbard had uh, four medals from World War II, which is the standard four medals they gave to everybody who was in the service in World War II, plus expert rifle and pistol. And uh, the injuries that he that he said he handled with Dianetics turned out to be, uh, according to his service record, he had ulcers and conjunctivitis. So not quite as dashing and heroic a story as uh, <laughs> he was telling. He... Uh, he, he, he his creativity was incredible, but uh, his ability yeah. to link it to reality sometimes was a bit tenuous. Uh, after he uh, after he got out of the uh, Navy, 1945, he moved in with a guy named John W. Parsons, Jack Parsons, who was a rocket scientist working for the U.S. government. Jack Parsons was also the child of uh, very rich people, and so he had a very nice house. <clears throat> and uh, he had his own activities he enjoyed doing, which was uh, he was a member of Aleister Crowley's Ordo Templi Orientis. Uh, he wrote letters to Aleister Crowley. Uh, he was a uh, which the the an offshoot of the Church of Satan. Uh, Hubbard was an active member and lived with this guy for several months, and that's where he met his second wife, although technically not his second wife because he wasn't divorced from his first wife when he married his second wife, so technically she couldn't have been his second wife because that would be illegal. But he ran off with Jack Parsons' girlfriend and his money, and Jack Parsons accidentally, they say, blew himself up in a uh, a chemical experiment. Since the guy was a rocket scientist, it seems a little more like perhaps he might have killed himself, but who knows? (laughs) So the fact that L. Ron Hubbard was living and working and and actually practicing satanic rituals, uh, trying to bring about this moon child, uh, this this special prophesied figure of uh, of Aleister Crowley's group. Uh, he was very active in it. Uh, Jack Parsons wrote a letter to Aleister Crowley in which he said he found a very powerful uh, wizard named uh, L. Ron Hubbard. Wow. Uh, yeah. Did you uh, see some of those uh, documents I sent you, by the way? I, I did not look uh, – did not have time to look into them today, no. But you well, can I I certainly you. talk I thought, about I anything you want to. I, I thought I'd send you some uh, technical documents so you could go through everything and uh, have your complete uh, background for everything. Uh, the at the same time he was living there, and shortly or shortly thereafter, 1947, he wrote a series of of affirmations 
things that he would repeat to himself to try to change his personality through a force of will. And uh, things, you know, describing what he was going through and, and such, and uh, that this is actually a document of L. Ron Hubbard. Is, uh, was, it was admitted into court, and the Church of Scientology said it belonged to L. Ron Hubbard in 1980 or 81 in, in uh, a Los Angeles Superior Court. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Church of Scientology admitted these affirmations were L. Ron Hubbard's, and uh, he had some interesting things in here. Uh, he talks about his uh, spirit guide, a red-headed lady who tries to control him, but he wants to control her. Uh, he, he talks about wanting to have power over people. Uh, it, here, here I'll, I'll just read a couple of examples just out of random out of here to give you an idea. Uh, he said, I can have no doubts of my psychic powers. My magical ability is high and clear. I earn my titles and command. Uh, he, this is interesting. My service record was not too glorious. I must be convinced that I suffer no reaction from any minor disciplinary action, that all such were minor. And the reason he wrote that part was uh, a couple of incidents. He, he basically would get to a new command, and they were short on officers everywhere during World War II, and the, particularly in the Navy and the Pacific. And they needed somebody who was uh, a, a qualified um, officer grade. So he would get to a new command, and then shortly thereafter start insinuating that he was working for some other admiral on some top-secret mission and needed to be left alone. And eventually someone would contact that admiral and discover there was no top-secret mission. Uh, that he was just a not very hardworking individual. Uh, and then that command would ship him off somewhere else. So he got shipped to several different commands during World War II. He never saw any combat. But interestingly, because of his uh, licenses and sailing and such, they put him in charge of a small uh, mine layer, and he attacked – uh, off the coast of Washington, he attacked a uh, magnetic deposit in the ocean and mined and blasted it and swore it was a uh, Japanese submarine on the coastline. And he called in aircraft. He called in other boats. He called in everything. And the net result was of the investigation afterwards was there was no Japanese submarine, and they removed, relieved him from command. Somehow he ended up on another ship, and after he attacked Mexico – uh, uh, shooting at, he's using one of the Mexican islands for target practice with his crew. Uh, they relieved him again, and uh, he spent the rest of his time in a desk job after that. So when he says that he uh, he didn't have a glorious military record, that's what he's getting at. Uh, let's see. Uh, I must cease to take hormones. I must rebuild my feelings of excitement. Uh, he talks uh, – let's just say that a great deal of this is about his sex life, and I don't want to get into that. <laughs> my mind is still brilliant, my memory unaffected by drugs or experience, and then he's back into sex again. Uh, I don't need to be jealous of Sarah's past. Now, Sarah Northrup was the girl he stole from Jack Parsons, and she was a younger lady, and he was uh, – she was 19 or so, and he was in his 30s and uh, – or late – early 30s, and uh, – so he was 
worried that she was always on, had her eye out for someone else. I mean, after all, she was in a satanic cult and switched from one boyfriend to another. And in the satanic cult, uh, most of their rituals were sex rituals. So uh, let's just say his wow. fascination and concerns about her. Yeah. But you see again and again, uh, things – it says your psychology is good. You work – to darken your own children, this failure with them was only apparent. The evident lack of effectiveness was ordered. The same psychology works perfectly on everyone else. You use it with great confidence. Oh, here it is. Nothing can intervene between you and your guardian. She cannot be displaced because she is too powerful. She does not control you. She advises you. You may or may not take the advice. You are, you are an adept and have a wonderful and brilliant mind of your own. So uh, it's page well, after page of very, very heavily into the cult. As I said, uh, Jack Parsons wrote a letter to Aleister Crowley and uh, told him wow. he found a very powerful wizard named Mel Ron Hubbard. So this was not a sideline thing. This was the main thing. And what's interesting is the parallels between uh, the uh, Ordo Templi Orientis, the Church of Satan, the branch of Church of Satan that he was involved with, their teachings and what the Church of Scientology teaches, there's a lot of parallels. Uh, I'll give you uh, five short uh, or four short ones. Uh, both say you go back to your childhood to work through your problems. They both say psychiatrists are bad. They both say that your spirit can leave your body and influence your environment. And they both say that through their practices, you can gain uh, mental and spiritual powers over the other people and over the universe. So there's so no, I, there's no coincidence. That, sure. So I, I was watching a, a clip here before the show started. It was an interview with, with Lauer and Tom Cruise, and he's going just on and on and on about psychiatry and how evil it is and how bad it is. So what's the deal with, this, with uh, the Scientologist uh, hating psychiatry. Uh, it's a combination of things. Number one, uh, L. Ron Hubbard, the uh, superior, uh, superior court judge in Los Angeles, said he was paranoid and delusional. And uh, his uh, second wife, pa, uh, uh, Sarah, uh, they had a child together, and he kidnapped the girl and took her to Cuba in order to use her as as bargaining power to keep Sarah from having him committed. Uh, because of his practices. He was a vicious uh, uh, person at times. Uh, and I, I tell you what might be helpful here. Uh, so you, you get a combination of his own personal uh, his own personal experiences with psychiatry, which was bad because of his his uh, his practices. And uh, you combine that with him coming up with Dianetics, which we're going to get into in just a moment, as a replacement for psychiatry, and he sees them as a competitor. And, and, okay. and the third thing is, and the third thing is, is that uh, psychiatry is part of their uh, creation myth of of life on Earth, and in, in they're the bad guys. Okay. I can definitely uh, see why they would think it's oh you know they're a they're a threat or competition. <laughs> that makes sense yeah, because they uh, would say Scientology can can handle those questions or those problems better yeah. than the psychiatrists. 
Yeah, we'll get we'll we'll get a little bit into the story and uh, of Zenu. Have you heard that that term? Well, I've heard the term. And that that name the story. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll get we'll get into a little of that uh, in a few minutes, but uh, let's just say in the history of our galaxy, Zenu is the ultimate bad guy, and he used psychiatrists and psychologists to control his people, and so. Uh, uh, let's just say, so it's part of their mythology, it's part of his personal history, and it's part of the competition uh, uh, for for his mental health. So after he after he spent time with the uh, satanic organization, uh, he continued writing, of course. And then uh, in May of 1950, in the uh, pulp uh, magazine called Astounding Science Fiction, on the cover, there's this yellow-eyed alien with his arms crossed in the bottom corner. It, there's a little blurb for an excerpt, and it says, Dianetics, a new science of the mind. Uh, so that was where it first – Dianetics was first introduced in a science fiction magazine. Um, so what is Dianetics? Have you, have you seen the book Dianetics, by the way, Devin, with the uh, volcano on the cover? I'm not. I'm really not. I mean, I've heard of it, but I've never like had one. Yeah. In my, I've never had a copy. No, you don't. Yeah. Well, they used to have commercials back in the olden days with uh, showing volcanoes exploding, trying to sell Dianetics on television. And wow. uh, uh, let's just say uh, it's interesting to read because it purports to be scientific, and and I've read. I haven't read all of it, but I've read some of it. But it's it's just. Repeat, replete with this pseudo-scientific uh, language, which sounds like a Pulp Fiction writer trying to write science as he thinks scientists talk without having a <laughs> background to use the terms correctly. Uh, it, it, you'll see the phrases such as, studies invariably show, uh, research has proven that, and things like this. But what I found fascinating, there's not a single footnote in the entire book. So oh, he wrote the book. He wrote the book in less than a month, and did no research prior to writing the book. He uh, he he told one of his friends that that same spirit guide, the redheaded lady, helped him write it. So uh, uh, anyway, the the dynamics itself. If you read the book, it's a it's a combination of hypnotic techniques, Freudian theories, some Buddhist concepts, uh, mixtures of other philosophies and practices. Um, it's interesting. The, here's the American Psychological Association. Here's how they reviewed the book. They said his claims were not supported by empirical evidence, which is what I mentioned. And I like this quote. This is from Scientific American. It said that Hubbard's book contained more promises and less evidence per page than any publication since the invention of printing. <laughs> wow. That's uh, that's not that's not exactly a glowing <laughs> review. So he uh, he wasn't a fan of that. Uh, so, so what is Dianetics? Dianetics takes the patient working with a partner called an auditor and re- realize that none of these people are are uh, trained in any kind of uh, mental health field. They're just supposed to use the books, and it's it's to uh, uh, it, it's for people to use themselves, lay people to use and cure themselves, which he claims uh, psychology and psychiatry was against him because he was taking their money away, and they said. It's because your practices don't work. So you work with an auditor. So would, would Dianetics people. be 
I'm sorry, Don. Would Dianetics yeah, be kind of like the Bible? Would, would, that, would, would Dianetics be like the Bible for Scientologists? Um, it would be like You know Genesis. what I'm saying? Like, it'd be no, like it would be Genesis. Yeah, okay. because uh, Genesis is the first of 66 books in the Bible, and, and uh, he wrote lots and lots of books that explained okay. his further theories and, and researches and stuff. Dianetics was the early stage okay. before it was a religion. They actually opened okay. Dianetics so like centers throughout the country. No, okay. no, it's uh, no, it, it it it's actually used only in the lowest, earliest stages of a person when they join Scientology, as they're trying to oh. work their way up the spiritual chain. Yeah, they uh, uh yeah, they uh, anyway, they uh, yeah, Dianetics is the, just the introductory book. It's supposed to get you in. The Dianetics phase lasted only till about I think fifty three, from fifty to fifty three. And as people began to have problems and realize it wasn't working and began to go bankrupt, he managed to sell it to a millionaire from Oklahoma who took the losses instead of Elrond. And uh, then he started a religion because it turns out you can't get nailed for tax evasion if you don't have to pay taxes. And uh, as he told uh, one of many, several of his friends in the early 50s, he said, you know, writing science fiction for pennies a page is not the way to get rich. He said, if you want to make a million dollars in America, you have to start a religion. Now, his wow. official reason for his official reason from sifting from Dianetics to Scientology was because he said, as they were doing this early childhood memory stuff, people were started remembering events prior to their birth, and he realized that there was a spirit that was uh, carrying on and living on. And since it was a spiritual activity, it was no longer uh, a self-help movement. It was now a religion. It was it was just the research took him there. It wasn't anything else. Uh, so um, during the Dianetics phase of, of becoming a Scientologist, you're going to be telling this auditor everything that you've gone, done in your life, which include any sexually aberrant or any criminal activity, any thoughts, any marital family problems. And the Scientologist, your, your auditor in Scientology, will write all these down supposedly to keep a record for you. But actually, if you try to leave the religion later, those can be used against you. Okay, so – 1953, wow. after, after Dianetics went bankrupt, the Church of Scientology, and by the way, he's a, he was really good at limiting indemnity. He, he was really good at limiting how much uh, financial liability he could suffer in a given case. So in 1953, he uh, started the Church of Scientology. The Church of American Science and the Church of Spiritual Engineering were all incorporated in Elizabeth, New Jersey by him. In 1954, the Church of Scientology is incorporated in California and Arizona. Now, to get you an idea about what these auditors are doing, they, they ask you to uh, – uh, say you've got some problem, and they ask you <clears> – <throat> uh, to recall an incident that might have led to this problem. Say – uh, whenever you hear a car backfire, you, you feel nervous or your elbow starts to hurt. And so they say, well, when's the last time that happened? And and the person says, well, you know, you get taken back and you say, well, last Tuesday I heard a car backfire hurt. Okay, now go to the next earlier incident, and you keep going further and further back. And then at some point, theoretically, you discover when you were three years old 
your father's car backfired and you fell off the rear bumper and broke your elbow on the sidewalk and that's why you associate cars backfiring with elbow pain and that's the whole idea it's uh it's a uh it's a form of of uh freudian uh analysis that was uh discarded by freud for not being particularly effective uh it's called ab reactive therapy and what you do is you go back to your earliest memories of whatever pains and and traumas you've had in your life and you talk them out with somebody until you get to the point where they don't bother you as much and you can imagine if you had some sort of painful incident from your early childhood and you've told somebody that story 300 times it stops it stops feeling quite so bad uh after the 300th time but uh, to make it more scientifically sounding, they added the electropsychometer called the e-meter. That's the uh, cans that uh, Leah Remini talks about in her show. Okay. If you saw if you saw this week's episode, the lady said she wasn't going to get on the cans anymore. Did you see this week's show? I, I'm not. I, I did see where they were talking. Okay. Uh, I think it was the last one about having to pay. You know, they have to pay in order to get shocked or oh, yeah. something. Was oh, that, yeah. Was that L, 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 yeah. Yeah. Yeah, L. Ron Hubbard said if you don't pay for something, you get what you paid for. So in other words, if something's free, it's worth that much. It has to be uh, has has to be uh, uh, if it's not paid for, it's not worth anything. So okay. these cans are electropsychometers. They're, they're galvometers. They measure skin resistance, and the uh, device puts a, a really low-level electric charge that runs through your body. And uh, as the auditor asks questions, how you react. Uh, will cause your skin resistance to change. Uh, if somebody brings up something painful to you, your skin resistance, you'll have a subtle physical reaction, and the skin resistance will uh, change subtly, or you'll maybe sweat a slight bit more, whatever, and the needle will jump on their meter. And so they can find out what's bothering you. Uh, so these these were making it... Uh, uh, more easy for them to do their job of, of digging into your past and finding out what where your problems come from and uh he, he so so basically uh uh they they would call these people that started doing this pre-clears uh and remember this is 1950s computer technology so we're talking about memory banks so you're trying to clear your memory banks of engrams these are like little uh, video memories in your mind that have associated uh, sounds and smells and all that. They're little, they're little memory uh, blobs in your in your mind. And what they're doing is they're gunking up the machinery of your brain. And if you can work all these things out, then you'll be called clear. You've cleared your memory banks, and then your brain will be a perfect processing machine, and you won't have any problems. That was the claim. Uh, they had their first person declared clear in the 1950s, and he brought them out on stage in Los Angeles. And uh, the young lady was a physics major who uh, was supposed to have perfect recall. Couldn't remember what color tie Ron was wearing standing behind her. Uh, couldn't remember basic physics formulas. Uh, basically, they laughed her out of the place, and Elrond uh, didn't talk about that incident anymore. Uh so uh, that, that's the uh, basics of how that gets started. Uh, the people now that he started Scientology, a lot of people wonder how do you get caught up in Scientology when it seems kind of nutty from the outside. Uh, that's a common question I get a lot. How do people end up in Scientology? Uh, if a person wanders into a Scientology center, 
the people at the center know that people are either going there for one or two reasons. Either they're just curious about those weirdos, as they would think of them, or they, they have a problem in their life, and they think maybe the Church of Scientology can help. People don't go looking for spiritual help because they feel spiritually satisfied. So you walk into a Scientology center. The people are trained to do what L. Ron Hubbard called find the ruin, which is find out what's bothering the person. And so they offer you a fun, free uh, personality test. It's called the Oxford Capacity Analysis. Has nothing to do with Oxford University. That's just a name they put on it. It's made up by L. Ron Hubbard and one of his followers. But if you call it Ox- Oxford Capacity Analysis, it makes it sound a lot more fancy. <laughs> and in the 1960s, the uh, governments in Australia and England got concerned about uh, what was going on. And so in England, they sent in trained psychologists to evaluate the Oxford Capacity Analysis. And it's about, I think, about 300 questions of. Uh, uh, you know, do I find, do I look at train schedules uh, for no reason? Do I sometimes find myself whistling? And you say I'm like that. I'm kind of like that. I'm not like that. And you got like A, B, or C choices for each of the questions for the psychological test. And so one of the psychologists randomly just checked off A, B, or C all the way through and turned it in. And they graded it and told him what he needed to work on. Well, they should have kicked it out as a false return because it was inconsistent, but it's not really a, a psychological test, so it didn't come back that way. One of the guys just put column A the entire way through, and they told him what courses he needed to take. The whole purpose is to get you started in there. Okay, so a person goes in there because there's something they're not happy about in their life. Happy people, as we know, don't typically go looking for help. So uh, let's say… Uh, a person has a rotten marriage. They fight all the time with their spouse. Well, when you go in there, it turns out from your Oxford Capacity Analysis that you need to take the communications course. Uh, let's say you're not successful at work the reason you went in there. Well, the reason you're not successful at work is because you're not communicating well. You need to take the communications course. Let's say uh, you're not doing well in school and you feel like you should be doing better. Well, it's because you don't communicate as well as you should, and you need to take the communications course. If you notice something in common, no matter what's what's going wrong in your life, you need to take the communications course. That's That's the first step in indoctrination. In the communications course, you're going to work with an auditor, and he's going to train you to communicate. So he's going to train you to listen, and he's going to train you to be more assertive. And so he'll tell you uh, – he'll give you commands such as uh, tell your desk just roll over, and you'll say roll over desk, and he'll say fail. Tell your desk to roll over, and you'll say roll over desk, and he'll say fail. And eventually you reach the point where you say roll over desk, and if you say it with enough – authority and conviction, he'll pass you to go to the next thing. What they're actually training you to do is to do whatever you're told. Wow. So you're learning to your, – your <clears throat> communications course is teaching you to follow orders is really what it's teaching you. While you're there, you'll also be learning a new uh, vocabulary, and if you look at cult behavior, and, and in case anyone's listening, I'm not saying Church of Scientology is a cult. If you look at cult behavior, they they do several things: uh, love bombing, 
they change the vocabulary. They want to change the person's social relationships from family and friends to them. And so while they're in the taking the communications course, they're going to have people. They're going to meet several Scientologists who tell them how wonderful they, it is to be a Scientologist. And that course is great, but the next one's even better. So you're going to be spending all this time. You're going to be learning all this new technology. You're going to be learning to follow commands. And when you finish the <clears> communications <throat> course, your diploma does not say Devin Pelu has graduated from the communication course. It's going to say Devin Pelu is now a Hubbard Apprentice Scientologist. They have changed you from someone going in looking for help for a specific problem to someone who thinks of themselves as part of their group now. Wow. Pretty slick. Yeah, that's, uh, it is very slick. Uh, he actually uh, – L. Ron Hubbard actually wrote books on mind control stuff and, and uh, put a Russian name on it and tried to sell it to the FBI as, as stuff he got from the Russians. So he he had studied hypnosis for years and, and uh, mind control. So he was very familiar with that type of stuff. So let's, that's uh, how let's, they get you in. Let's do this, so, Don. Yeah, if, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's, let's do this. Let's take a, a quick uh, couple-minute break here, uh, give people an opportunity. Um, you're good if, if people call in, Don? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Not sure we'll get any calls, yeah. but if there is anybody out there that would like uh, to call in, uh, the number is 760 3907. That's 760-542-3907. We're here with Don Deal, the Director of Worldview Evangelism and Apologetics for uh, Dr. Norm Geisler International Ministries. We are looking at the issue of Scientology. How do we do evangelism with them? What is the uh, what is their view of the, the origins of the universe and, and kind of where we're going? We'll explore these and other questions when we come back, so stay with us. It's not enough simply to acknowledge the truth mentally. When you read John Calvin, you'll just find yourself in a, a life that's saturated by the awareness that without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. Calvin, outside of God's Word, has been the greatest influence in my life. I find the Institutes, they take me into a world where the triune God is center to everything and where the grace of Jesus Christ shapes life. Calvin had a motto that summed up his life. My heart I give to you, O God, promptly and sincerely. Calvinism is not sterile and clinical and cold and academic. It pulses with exultant adoration. Adoration that is the overflow of hearts that have been invaded by inexplicable, sovereign, saving, redeeming grace. And where these pulse beats are missing, it's not Calvinism that's missing. It's Christianity that's missing. The Gospel does not leave us where we are with minds that have become entranced or even infatuated by the doctrines of grace, the gospel comes to capture the citadel of our beings and to bring us in wholehearted consecration to the Lord Jesus Christ who redeemed us by his precious blood and who gave himself 
that we might be reconciled and restored to God. Ladies and gentlemen, I got an email from the United States Marine not long ago. He said his daughter was the top Christian student in her high school class. She won several scholarships from Christian organizations to go to college. She went off to college and he said four weeks into her first semester, I got a phone call from her. Her words devastated me. She said, Dad, I don't believe in God anymore. I don't believe in God anymore? What happened? She ran into atheistic college professors on campus and she didn't know how to answer them, so she's an atheist now. Don't let that happen to you or your child. Join me and Jay Warner Wallace, the cold case homicide detective, along with Mike Adams, the UNC college professor, so you can learn why Christianity is true, how to answer what the atheists are saying, and how to stand strong for Christ in a culture that is bringing you an avalanche of ideas both on and off campus against the Christian faith. We're giving registration priority to high school and college students and their parents. If any space remains, then this event is gonna be open to the entire congregation. Don't miss this unique opportunity to see why Christianity is true and how you can stand strong in this culture that's hostile to Christ. Here are the details. With so many Christian resources on the web today, it's hard to know who to trust or even where to start. So we handpick the best content, biblical teaching, scripture reading, music, audiobooks, and more. Then we stream it directly to you. No searching, no downloading. Just press play. It's called RefNet, 24-hour Christian Internet Radio. Available now in the App Store and online. All right, folks, welcome back to Theology Matters. We are having a discussion with uh, my good friend Don Deal about Scientology. We are taking your phone calls. If you have questions or comment, uh, maybe you're a Scientologist and you would uh, like to ask some questions or have a conversation, uh, the number to call is 760-542-3907. Uh, Don, quick question for you. You know, if I'm thinking, sure. okay, so if I had a Scientologist come up to me and if I was giving, given the opportunity to have some conversation with them, I think more of the route I would go would be asking them something, something to the effect of, um, where does Scientology, how do they account for, for like the origins of the universe or the fine tuning of the universe, these, these kind of things. What do they say about things like that? So if you were to ask, you know, uh, you know, so where does everything come from? How do they respond well, to I'm those sure. type of questions? Well, I, I, I can tell you that they're generally trained to get you into the center to try to take the, psycholo- the uh, personality test. So they're going to try to deflect your question to get you to do research yourself in their centers while purchasing their materials. But I'll tell you what the actual answer to that is. We created the universe the universe is our agreement. We collectively, our spirits, our thetans, our thetans, collectively decided to create this universe in order to experience matter. And our spirits have become confused and lost over the millennia within this universe. So the, the appearance of design is because we are minds and we created it. This is our agreed reality. So are they pantheists? Uh, 
I, I typically define the religion as a neo-Gnostic religious corporation uh, because it's got a lot of Gnostic aspects to it, and it's uh, uh, it does have religious aspects, but it's very much a money-making organization. So are they pantheistic? Like monism? Is that how they kind of view reality? Uh, well, there's us collective, but we're individuals, and we've always okay. been individuals. Uh we created matter as separate from ourselves in order to experience it. So you wouldn't say, I don't know that pan, maybe panentheism as opposed to pantheism would be more accurate. Okay. That we're, the, that we're the mind, the spirit behind it all. Yeah. It's, uh, let's just say that uh, specific details, uh, if you go through various of L. Ron Hubbard's books on from the Scientology books, I think I've got about 10 of them in my library. They, uh, they're not consistent. His use of terminology is not consistent. His concepts are not consistent. They were whatever he was working on and thinking of at the time goes into the latest books, and it may contradict the previous books in some aspects. So there's a general overall theme, but uh, uh, it's not consistent. So I think a systematic theology would not be there. Okay. Very good. Um, I didn't mean to interrupt your flow, so I'll kind of let you pick oh, no up problem. where you had left off and just kind of kind of go from there. Okay. Okay. Well, I was going to get to the beliefs next. What is what they teach? And so there, your question's a good segue. Uh, what mm-hmm. do they teach? Well, it's, it's comprised exclusively of the teachings of one man, L. Ron Hubbard, Lafayette Ronald Hubbard. And, and I don't mean to interrupt myself even, but I just wanted to make sure I gave them the fair treatment when I talked about how he was living with Jack Parsons, was a member of the Church of Satan, or the Ordo Tempo, Templi, uh, they say he was working undercover to bust up a satanic ring for the authorities. There's no record of that, but that's their, their version of the story. So I just want to make sure we, we gave their side of the story a fair hearing too. Uh, there's no mil- there's no police or FBI records of L. Ron Hubbard ever working for them and busting up a ring like that. But that is the official uh, Scientology version after it became proven that he was there. But anyway, uh, back to the teachings. Uh, Hubbard's theories, assumptions, and techniques for practical applications. Uh, th- that those are the things that make up the rituals of Scientology. They they sometimes call them spiritual technology or the tech. L. Ron Hubbard is known as uh, – well, L. Ron, he's also known as the source. Uh, he is the person who discovered all this stuff. He didn't – He didn't. he's not a prophet in the sense that there's no God transmitting information through him. He's a discoverer who found these things through research. Hubbard claimed to have discovered certain natural laws of the spiritual universe – he claimed that he can be that these laws can be used to predict and control behavior and phenomena in a manner similar to the way the natural laws are codified in the physical sciences that can be used to predict and control phenomena in the physical world. So he discovered the the spiritual laws that correspond to the to the physical laws. They assume that spirituality and thought, called theta, symbolized by the Greek letter theta is an energy existing in its own universe, separate and distinct from the physical universe of matter, energy, space, and time. And they call this physical universe, they call it NEST as an abbreviation for matter, energy, space, and time. So they'll say the NEST universe to separate it from the spiritual universe. Spirit 
the theta is senior to and and actually created the physical universe as we just talked about. Each individual person called a thetan is considered to be a thought unit of the spiritual universe, which interacts with the physical universe, usually by inhabiting a human body. The uh, theta is a spirit, is, is a term. It's, it's a source of life in the individual. It's recognized as the core of personality or essence of oneself, distinct and separate from the physical body or the brain. The brain is what our spirits use to interact with our body in the physical universe, so they're kind of tripartite in that respect. Scientology proposes that in its native state, the spirit or thetan is immortal and godlike and possesses the potentiality of knowing everything, but in the present time, its true capabilities have been lost and forgotten. And this is why they call them a neo-Gnostic group. If you study Gnosticism, Devin, you know some of the similarities there as far as… Uh, being lost in the physical world and all that. Uh, uh, right. I, I prob- if, if you've seen some of uh, Plotinus's writings, it's uh, it's a lot of that similar type idea. <clears throat> so how would they describe uh, uh, the universe? They would describe it in terms of eight dynamics, and and the dynamic or the thrust is survival. And morality is what equals the most survival on the most dynamics. And so they say that the most moral people on earth, that you hear them talk about how moral they are all the time, is because they have their own definition of morality. Okay, the first dynamic would be yourself. You want to survive as a person. Your second dynamic would be your family. You want your family to, to, to survive. Third dynamic would be your group, the people you affiliate with. Fourth dynamic would be species, so you want humans to survive. Fifth dynamic would be every life form. The sixth dynamic is the physical universe. The seventh dynamic are all the spirits that inhabit the universe. And the eighth dynamic is known as infinity or God. And he was very fond of using the uh, infinity symbol. Well, I, uh, one of the documents I sent you, which people can find easily if they want to look it up, is the uh, Bridge to Total Freedom, which is the guide chart of how to uh, how to go from – it's a bridge from, from nothing to uh, restoring your godlike powers. It's the chart of what training and what study you need to do in order to reach it. And what's interesting is one side's the training and one side's the uh, auditing and one side's the study and training. So uh, there's two sides to the chart, and you can work on both sides simultaneously if you like. But in the middle, they have what's called a tone scale. And the tone scale uh, is a way to help determine where you are in your spiritual growth. And so you can tell it uh, if you see uh, – and also a way to identify where other people are. And so what they do as part of their communication course uh, and for later training, uh, they teach people how to handle situations. And so what they do is they try to classify you as where you are on the tone scale so they know what tone to take with you. And if you're pretty far down on the tone scale, then they have nothing but disgust for you. And if you're higher up, then they handle you in a different way. So it's a, it's a way of teaching them how to communicate with other people and also how to control them. That's part of that whole control your environment idea. Uh, so what you you look in this tone scale, besides emotions, in this book called Science of Survival, and as I said, you can find it on the Internet in multiple copies. The Church of Scientology's website has a copy of the uh, uh, Bridge to Total Freedom. 
Uh, each level of characteristics, such as to know how far up he goes, health state, sexual activity, dealing with truth, activity level, worth to society, and it can get very specific. And I'll, I'll just read off a few of the examples so people can kind of get an idea. This is not – don't expect a logical progression because some of this is uh, – uh, you would have to be a Scientologist, and, and I don't really get how they go from one to the other. Like minus 40 on the tone scale, which is uh, called – it's an area of, called unknowable. It's called total failure. And then above that's can't hide, being nothing, being objects, then hiding, sacrifice, worshiping bodies. We're moving up the scale as I speak. Needing bodies, approval from bodies, owning bodies, protecting bodies, controlling bodies. And then finally, you're getting close to the zero level. You start off at minus 40. Now you're at minus 1.3 when you're at regret. And then you move up to blame. And then you move up to accountable, shame, pity, failure, body death is where you're at zero. So the next part of the scale, those lower parts are where the worst spirits are at. And then the next section is where you're at while you're in a body. So body death is zero for obviously in the physical body. Dying's above that. Then useless, apathy, hopeless, victim, self-abasement. Undeserving, uh, making amends for some reason is uh, barely in your existence as a human being, and above that's grief. So grief is above making amends, followed by propitiation, sympathy, numb terror, fear, despair, fear, anxiety. For some reason, uh, and I, I like I said, I don't get some of this. Making amends is well below fear and despair and terror and numbness. You know, I, I don't, I don't get that. Covert hostility. Now, that's that's where if you ask a question and they take you as being uh, critical of Scientology based on your question, they would put you in the covert hostility and they would treat you in a certain way. Uh, hate, anger, pain, hostility, antagonism, monotony, boredom, disinterested, contented, mild interest. Conservatism, self-strong interest, cheerfulness, enthusiasm, aesthetic, and acceleration. Now, acceleration, that's the highest level. It's eight on the tone scale, the highest level that a person who's currently in a body can can exhibit. And if you think back to when Tom Cruise was on Oprah Winfrey's show and he was talking about his love for Katie Holmes. Did you, did you see that show, uh, Devin? No. <clears throat> oh, that's the one where he, he that's the one where he jumped that's the one where he jumped up and down on the couch. <laughs> was he angry or something? Or? No, he was so much in love with Katie, he was jumping up and down on the couch and shouting to the rooftops his love for her and and uh pumping his arms in the air and he was literally bouncing standing and jumping up and down on her couch on the show. Most of the world thought that guy seems a little bit nuts. Scientologists thought that's what I'm trying to reach because that's the highest part of the tone scale. That indicates to the to Scientologists around the world, while he's jumping up and down on the couch and shouting his love for for Katie, that ex, that showed that he'd reached the highest level of Scientology you can reach in your body. Which is pretty amazing. Wow. Uh, so above that. Spiritual levels, uh, action, games, postulates, and serenity of beingness is the highest level. 
So uh, the Bridge to Total Freedom, I'll let people look at that, but it's a huge complex chart with class after class and, and training after training you have to do in order to move up the scale. It starts off from pre-clear, and which is what you and I are doing because we haven't got our memory banks cleared out. You reach clear okay. to reach clear to reach clear <laughs> so my to bank get our memory bank cleared out, but not my memory bank. <laughs> well, that's because you're. Let me see where you're at on the tone scale here. Uh, it looks pretty low to me, but uh, but uh, but to reach clear, which is the basic level of Scientology, to reach clear cost conservatively about thirty five thousand uh, dollars. Once you go above that, then you enter the operating Thetan levels or operating Thetan levels, depending on which Scientologist is speaking. Uh, operating Thetan means your spirit, your Thetan, can be at cause with the universe. That means your spirit is beginning to gain powers, and as you go up that scale, uh, current training allows you to go up to OT, operating Thetan level 8, is the highest current scale, but they have a list up to 15, which would be when you gain your God powers back. Nobody's ever made that high. Uh what was interesting in this week's show that on Leah Rimini's show was she had a lady who was at OT level eight, the highest one, and got frustrated and quit the religion because it, they were just taking her money and putting pressure on her all the time. And uh, it's, 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 it's sad, but it's, uh, you know, it is the way they do things. Uh, everything costs, and there's constant pressure to keep moving up that chain. And if your family members are holding you, move up that bridge. If your family members are hold, holding you back from moving up the bridge, then you need to get rid of your family members. The disconnection is the term for that. So okay, this next part. So I guess they're yeah they're pretty well funded then, right? As far as because so many people have oh, to yeah. pay for everything, and it's it's so much yes. in with the. Um, Oh yeah, yeah, with the Hollywood world. Oh yeah, the corporation, though the religious corporations, worth billions of dollars, even though they have less than a half million members around the world. Uh, they, they, wow. they, they, they specific. L. Ron Hubbard specifically sought out celebrities uh, back in the starting in the fifties. He had a specific program with a list of celebrities he wanted to recruit. Because if you're starting a religion, you got two choices. Get your members to go out and knock on doors or that sort of thing, or – and his idea was you bring in celebrities, and they will be the lights that will draw the moths in. And so they have a separate wow. section uh, of the 30 corporations that make up Scientology. Uh, they have one section called the Celebrity Center, which is the whole idea is to pamper and get celebrities to come in and give them – Connections within the industry to help them make them more successful, so they can sell the religion. Okay, the creation myth uh, part of this. Uh, L. Ron Hubbard said that if he hadn't reached operating Thetan level three, he said he almost died to discover this part. Uh, if you haven't reached that level yet, and you hear this creation myth, you'll die. So, if you're willing to take a chance on your life, Devin, I will tell you the creation myth. If you're, you know, if, if you're concerned about dying immediately or within the next couple of weeks, then then let me know. But otherwise, I'll I'll be happy to tell you the big creation myth. <laughs> okay. Okay. Now they will. By the way, they have publicly denied this repeatedly. Uh, but WikiLeaks has the audio files of L. Ron Hubbard teaching this, and there's. Uh, PDFs of L. Ron Hubbard's personal handwriting describing exactly what I'm getting ready to say. So uh, people in the religion will tell you it's true. Leah Rimini in this week's episode talks about this story, which she doesn't get into too much detail on, is what made her begin to think, really? So here's the story. This is why there's problems on Earth. 
75 million years ago, Xenu, the evil galactic overlord of our galactic federation, which was an organization of 76 planets that had already existed for 20 uh, million, uh, excuse me, yeah, 20 million years. The planets were suffering a tremendous problem with overpopulation, so Xenu's draconian solution to the matter was to gather large numbers of people, kill them, freeze their thetans, and these people we call them aliens, but they're just, you know, other people in other parts of the galaxy. Freeze their souls. He killed them, froze them, and transported them uh, aboard spaceships that looked just like DC-8s, which were pretty modern back then. And uh, they took them to a planet called Tegiak 75 million years ago. Tegiak is what we call Earth. These frozen spirits were left in the vicinity of volcanoes, which were in turn around the Ring of Fire, which were in turn destroyed in a series of nuclear explosions. But Xenu was not dumb. He put magnetic ribbon collectors around Tegiak Earth <laughs> and collected all their spirits. And in those, and had like multiplexes in, uh, uh, orbiting the Earth, and programmed all the spirits with the world's religions. Uh, just to let you know, wow. you don't have to worry too much. Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. There's a science. There's actually a South Park episode that does Scientology. It's not exactly safe for children, but it's uh, very funny, and they <laughs> they. They have a little animation of this whole section, and it's uh, pretty funny. The only the only mistake they made was they say Scientologists really believe this stuff, but most Scientologists haven't reached a level to have heard this story yet, so most Scientologists wouldn't believe it. And the ones that have heard it believe they're saving our lives by not telling us about it. Wow. By the way, the uh, yeah, Xenu was eventually captured and imprisoned in a uh, in a in a mountain trap where he still lives today, so he may come back. Well, these Thetans, which were confused and programmed with the world's religions and stuff, but also confused and lost and floating around, attached themselves to our bodies, and they cause uh, physical and mental problems. And so if you have a, a bad elbow, it may not be physical. It most likely isn't. It most likely is a body Thetan. And so the upper levels of, of training in Scientology mostly consist – of exorcisms is what we would call it, but they're basically trying to get these spirits to leave their bodies. Interesting, huh? Very interesting. And, and you, you probably thought it, this is a, you probably a, thought a, it wasn't nutty at all. I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> no, it's just it's like you know it's the perfect storm. You got like a, the expert expert science fiction writer and. Uh, you know, it's just like wow, it's it's the perfect storm. Well, he actually spent the '60s sailing around uh, the Atlantic and the Mediterranean, trying to find a country to take over. So uh, he uh, he thought a lot of himself. <laughs> wow. Oh yeah, you you can find an interview by the BBC while he's in his captain's outfit on his boat. Uh, he 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 actually wrote a constitution for Rhodesia, in which he. Uh, uh, let the the African black African people have some uh, some representation in the lower levels of parliament. He thought it was very advanced uh, 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 constitution, but if you actually look at it, the upper level run by the white people has all the uh, powers of negation. So the black people have very limited uh, would have had very limited power. 
Yeah, they 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 liked his constitution so much they had him kicked out of the country. They uh, they saw him <laughs> as uh, someone who might be trained. He tried Morocco. He tried several places where he thought he could his brilliance and his mind control powers would allow him to to uh, take a. You know, he just thought they would just announce him as the the leader because he was so brilliant. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm going to discuss the, a couple of yeah. Yeah, go go yeah, right go ahead. ahead. I, I was just going to say what what real quick. One of the one of the interesting things that I had uh, found out was, uh, especially with Leah Remini, was because uh, it seems like uh, at least with a lot of the Hollywood people, they come to it. They come to Scientology after uh, getting into Hollywood and acting, etc. And I could be wrong on that, but I, it seems like no, that's no, it. it's correct. But I know I know with yeah. her, she was actually like brought up in it, right? Is that yeah. Um, yeah. For a lot of the popular, I guess, level Scientologists, are they do they convert to it after they become big and famous, or yeah. are they brought up? In no, it? no, 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 no. Uh, for the actors and such, uh, they have recruitment policies there. What 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 will typically happen is a well-known actor or director will have workshops set up. A Scientologist actor or director will set up a workshop in which they'll have young, promising actors and such come in. And then they okay. will say, hey, I'm going to have a get-together at my house this weekend. Would you like to come over and uh, do a little study with us? And you got these unknown people trying to make it, and Tom Cruise invites you over to his house for the weekend. What are you going to say? Yeah. So wow. they go over there, and then he starts telling them that all my success is due to Scientology. It taught me you know, how to communicate. It taught me how to inhabit roles in a believable way. It taught me how to uh, – uh, use my personality in a in a successful way. I, I was a loser. Well, Tom Cruise says he was dyslexic before Scientology, and it fixed everything. What what motivates him to <clears throat> just to, I guess, be such an evangelist for Scientology? I mean, to see why why is he? It's one thing, okay, if it works well, for him, then just do it. Why is he such an evangelist for it? Is there like rewards or something? Uh, oh yeah, he's definitely treated well. Uh, his his mansion has had and he's had cars and motorcycles and stuff all fixed up by Scientology labor. Uh, when he was dating, uh, uh, not not Katie Holmes, but uh, his previous wife, uh, the Australian actress, uh, Brooke. I'm sorry, say that again. That Brooke Shields. Um... I'm totally no, no, lost. Yeah, uh, it was Nicole Kidman. Okay. When he was dating Nicole, his first wife is Mimi Rogers, who got him into uh, Scientology. Uh, his second wife was Nicole Kidman. When he was dating Nicole Kidman, uh, like the Scientologist planted a whole side of the hill of this hill at their headquarters with flowers, so he could bring her there and romance her. Uh, his wow. mansion in Colorado is covered with uh, – full of custom work done by labor of Scientology. And just to let you know how far into it he is, his best man at his wedding was David Miscavige, who's the uh, the chairman of the board of the Religious Technology Center, which runs Scientology. So uh, wow. he, he's a true believer. You can find a uh, video. It's about 10 minutes long of Tom Cruise extolling the virtues of Scientology at a international association of Scientologists meeting on YouTube. And uh, it's it's a little spooky at times. I'll say that. 
Wow. He says in it that if there's a car wreck or something, as a Scientologist, he knows he's the only one who can help. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's. It's. It for me, it's been fascinating. I. I. It's. There's so few of them. I feel like I'm wasting my time, but it's just so interesting. Okay, we, we we talked about a suppressive person. That's what uh, Leah Remini was declared after she uh, left the religion and, and questioned it. And that's a person who possesses a distinct set of characteristics and mental attitudes that cause him to suppress other people in the vicinity. This is the person whose behavior is calculated to be disaster. He's, uh, this is L. Ron Hubbard's definition, also called an antisocial personality. Uh, and this is fair game, which that she talks about in the series. As they've had three episodes so far, and uh, this is the original wording, uh, SP order, which is suppressive person order, called fair fair game. And uh, I have all of L. Ron Hubbard's uh, uh, all of the letters and and output he put. Uh, the, I don't know how many, maybe thirty thousand letters and such. I have PDFs of all of them. I haven't gone through all of them, but. Uh, this one says, fair game, a person who's been declared fair game may be deprived of property or injured by any means by any Scientologist without any discipline of the Scientologist, may be tricked, sued, or lied to, or destroyed. Wow. Uh, if you look at a 19, yeah, if you look at a 1990 uh, uh, Time Magazine cover story, you can find it online. It's called Scientology, a Cult of Greed. One of the side stories is what the writers went through to write the story. Uh, Not exactly uh, so, do unto others as you would have them do unto no. you. Well, you could be a Christian and be a Scientologist, right? John Cruz said so. And, if, <laughs> and he's and he's good looking, so he can't lie. Yeah, well, story. what happened is in the in the mid seventies when L. Ron Hubbard went uh, wife went to prison for the uh, massive infiltration of government facilities that Scientology had done. Uh, during the 60s and early 70s, uh, he discontinued the use of the term fair game, and that's what they talked about. Leah Remini keeps talking about fair game. She said it's been it's been discontinued, but they still do it. Well, that's because she didn't read the actual L. Ron Hubbard's uh, discontinuing order. His discontinuing order said stop using the term fair game. He didn't say <sighs> stop doing these practices, and that's why they still do the practices. Uh, let me so is she defending Ron offer. Hubbard? Yeah. Uh, is Leah Remini defending L. Ron Hubbard? No. She just thinks that okay. uh, because she's been told it's been it's been discontinued, she believes that. She hasn't done the research. It's like okay. uh, expecting a, the average person of the pew of the church to defend church doctrines. You know, they're just not equipped for it. And she's she was a, a devout member, but she doesn't know everything about the religion. Right. <clears throat> Well, in the 1960s and 70s, L. Ron Hubbard's paranoia with the U.S. government, he had Scientology planted spies in the IRS and the Justice Department. They planted bugging devices and stole hundreds of thousands of documents, many confidential documents and plans. It was uncovered by the IRS and the FBI in 1977 did a raid on Scientology headquarters and discovered that for the previous eight years that the uh, Scientology had perpetrated a con- – this is their wording – perpetrated a conspiracy involving manufacturing and falsifying records to present to the IRS, burglarizing IRS offices, stealing government documents, and subverting government processes for unlawful purposes. 
Eleven of the church leaders after that raid, including L. Ron Hubbard's wife, Mary Sue Hubbard, were convicted of conspiracy and burglary and went to prison. L. Ron Hubbard had officially left the religion in 1970. He was running it through messengers, kind of like the way Osama bin Laden used to run al-Qaeda and the way uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri does now, through personal messengers, not through uh, letters and such. That way you can't trace the leadership back to him while in the case of L. Ron Hubbard, money was pouring in. He was worth hundreds of millions of dollars by the time he died. So what they wow. discovered was there was a le- – yeah, well, this is what they discovered. As part of their fair game process, there was a lady named uh, Paulette Cooper who in the 60s wrote a book called The Scandal of Scientology, which was the first book uh, critical of Scientology investigation. And and uh, one of the documents from Scientology said the idea is to get the uh, – to get PC, meaning Paulette Cooper. The p- goal of their process was to get PC incorporated – incarcerated – in a mental institution or jail, or at least to hit her so hard she drops her attacks. And yeah, uh, there's actually a new book out about that whole thing with her. It's called uh, something. Uh, let me find the name of the book real quick. Very interesting. The Unbreakable Miss Lovely is the name of the new book. It came out last year. Uh, it's interesting. I've uh, read it. It's by Tony Ortega, who's got a website dedicated to uh, criticizing. Uh, he's a former uh, newspaper editor who uh, who's been got a full time mission now to destroy a Scientology. Uh, wow. He wrote a book called The Unbreakable The Unbreakable Miss Lovely: How the Church of Scientology Tried to Destroy Paulette Cooper. And I had been studying them for a while, but I saw stuff in there that just blew my mind how far they went. I mean literally having people move into the apartment complex, befriend her, getting copies of her fingerprints so they could put it on other documents and send bomb threats into Henry Kissinger's and others with her fingerprints on it and her signature on the document because they stole stuff out of her apartment that they had her sign and such. Yeah, Yeah, so anybody anybody who gets – Anybody who begins to question it is uh, up for disconnection, which was what this week's show is about, which is where if I'm trying to advance as an individual Scientologist and my wife quits Scientology, then i got to get rid of her because she's going to hurt my spiritual advancement because she's going to be bringing doubt into my mind. And, and, I, yeah. and I realize we're, These people we're, got guts. we're running These along. These people got guts. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. He was uh, He was powerful. I, I just thought I'd go ahead and just for Christians who are wondering if it's compatible based on what Tom Cruise said, I thought I'd just mention a few quotes from L. Ron Hubbard on Jesus Christ. These are from his talks. He said, For those of you whose Christian toes I may have stepped on, let me take the opportunity to disabuse you of some lovely myths. For instance, the historic Jesus was not nearly the sainted figure he's been made out to be. In addition to being a lover of young boys and men, he was given to uncontrollable bursts of temper and hatred. You have only to look at the history of his teachings inspired to see where it all inevitably leads. And this is what he said. Yeah, and this is what he said about himself on one of his lectures. No doubt you are familiar with the Revelation section of the Bible where various events are predicted. Also mentioned is a brief period of time in which the archenemy of Christ referred to as the Antichrist will reign and his opinions will have sway. This Antichrist represents the forces of Lucifer, he said literally the light bearer or light bringer, 
Lucifer being a mythical representation of the forces of enlightenment. My mission could be said to fulfill the biblical promises represented by this brief Antichrist period. It's, it's uh, interesting that uh, the Scientology cross, which is an eight-pointed cross, is exactly the same shape as the cross used by the Church of Satan, uh, which has a it's a X'd out cross. Wow, no coincidence there, is it? Well, in 1952, in a Philadelphia doctorate course lecture, he said, L. Ron Hubbard said, uh, talking about the book Magic and Theory and Practice by Aleister Crowley, he said, it's a fascinating work in itself, and that's the work written by Aleister Crowley, the late Aleister Crowley, my very good friend. Wow. How, how's, this, how's this for a final thing? Uh, the, the latest news is uh, uh, the... Uh, uh, Nation of Islam and Louis Farrakhan. Louis Farrakhan has ordered all his ministers to reach the level level of clear in Scientology. Man, and, and when you you might think, why would they do that? Well, if if you're a member of the Nation of Islam and you believe that God is a black man in a spaceship, how how far is that away from Scientology and Zenu and all that stuff? Oh yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Take take um yeah. we'll, we'll, we're going to we'll go a few minutes uh extra over folks. Uh, the live broadcast will end at 8, but we'll have the podcast up. Don, take a few minutes. Talk to us. How do we how do we uh share the gospel? How do we evangelize with uh, our Scientologist friends? How do we even begin that conversation? Where do we start? Well, you, you certainly don't do it by doing a, a direct presentation of the gospel directly to them immediately. I mean, you could. You've got you to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit in that matter. But for the most part, they're trained that our religion is an implant by an alien and that, uh, and that everyone who's not a Scientologist, they call us wogs. All wogs are, are close to the level of insanity. And that uh, they're the only ones with a way to save the universe. And so uh, you've got to be aware that they're not going to trust anything you say. So um, I don't know if you read the book uh, Conversational Evangelism by Norman and David Geisler. Obviously, I know of it yeah. because I worked there. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's that type technique I think works with these hard cases where you ask – uh, seemingly simple, unobtrusive questions that get at the heart of the problems within their system. Like they've been, pro- you know, for instance, uh, Scientologists are promised that the next level they'll have such great spiritual growth. Well, once they reach the level of clear, there's not much that changes after that. The level of clear helps them get through all their psychological problems they had in childhood. And so uh, for so, many Scientologists find those training and those periods to be very helpful in their lives because it's, uh, you know, Rob Strait from uh, Freudian uh, abreactive therapy would be the term for it. So it's a form of psychotherapy, and they, some people find – many people there find it helpful. So the early stages, but once they get past that – it, 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 they just go – they end up on the hamster trail, and they just end up running in a circle the whole time. And every time they reach a level, they have to go back and redo it a few years later, and they never progress, and nothing ever changes in their life. And so the question you could ask them would be, uh, you know, have you – do you feel like you, – you could start off with a, a non-confrontational type question like, has Scientology helped you? 
and of course they're going to be gushing about it because they want to sell it to you. And you could say, in, in what ways has it helped you? You know, could you give me some examples? And then you know, could you give me some specific ways that it helped you? And they're going to continue to talk in generalities because they can't talk about specifics because there are no specifics. And and um, at some point when they feel comfortable that you're listening to them and that you're not treating them just as an object, uh, you could ask them, uh, what, what do you believe about my beliefs? And they'll say, well, everybody has their own truth, that sort of thing. And, and you could say, do you think based on what you've been taught that I should question what I believe? And of course they're going to say, yes, you probably, yeah, you should. And you'd say, you could say, do you think you should question what you've been taught? And that and that becomes the thing that the, that that question is going to stick in their mind, and uh, it's going to cause them to start questioning for the first time because they've been taught from day one to simply follow orders, and that Elrond knows more than they do, and just to shut their mind down and just accept it. And uh, little things like that. I've I've read at least four books by ex Scientologists, and it was little things like that that began to wake them up. Uh, as in most people completely indoctrinated into a belief system, it's not going to happen overnight for the most part. But uh, if you keep up the communication, you keep up the caring, loving, and prayer, it, it can it, it's effective over the longer period, not the shorter period. What are some good books on this? Uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, I had a page up here just a second. Uh, the, the most popular new book is... Uh, Going Clear, Scientology, Hollywood, and the Prison of Belief by Lawrence Wright. That's a, that's a good general uh, kind of introduction to it. doesn't get into too much detail, but uh, that one they made into a documentary that's been on HBO and other shows. Um, my two personal favorites, if you want to get a little bit deeper into it, uh, is one's called A Piece of Blue Sky, a Dianetics, uh, Scientology, Dianetics, and L. Ron Hubbard exposed, but it, the title is A Piece of Blue Sky by John Atek. And then uh, my other favorite for Bell, L. Ron Hubbard is a book called Bare-Faced Messiah, The True Story of L. Ron Hubbard by Russell Miller. So uh, well, th- those are my yeah, two personal favorites. Interesting. Now, to your to your knowledge, uh, Leah Remini, is she, she's not a Christian or – or is she, you know, uh, she's no, no, no. flirting with Christianity very, very, at all or anything? Um, you know, being Italian, I wouldn't doubt that uh, some people are trying to get her uh, back into the Catholic faith that many of her family and friends, I'm sure, are involved in. But uh, I have not heard anything specifically yet. Interesting. Uh, it's uh, yeah, it's I, very I interesting to, yeah. how God is using this. I mean, it's it's uh, it's really getting a lot of conversations going and. Man, I, she's got guts. I give it to her because uh, this is really, I think, going to do some damage to Scientology. Don't you? Don't you think so? Being on such a national platform. Yeah. Yes, I, I do. I think that uh, the tipping point, I think, started with the South Park episode. Uh, the South Park episode was the first uh, full-length expose uh, to really uh, put. Some Scientology teachings out there, and also to to uh, to mock it at the same time to let people know uh, how silly it could be. Uh, but she's she's exposing the dark underbelly, whereas South Park just kind of put up a generic uh, "here's what they believe, isn't it silly" kind of stuff. 
express. She's got the courage and the background to be able to expose the, the nasty side. And, and she doesn't know the half of it. She'll come, she's going to come across some more people. Uh, I have no idea how many stories she's going to tell in her series, but uh, there's been many books written by ex-Scientologists and it's really hard to get them published because uh, Scientology would sue the publishers and say, they quoted this, that's copyrighted material. They defamed this person. And the publisher has got to decide whether the book's going to make enough money to justify the legal defense. Yeah, that's what's been and that's, that's what's and that's, been interesting. Yeah. yeah, just just seeing you know A and E take that on, or even the yeah. news. Well, I'm, I'm really surprised to see the mainstream news like CNN uh, doing a lot of stuff. You know, kind of going after them. Yeah, I, yeah, oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, Anderson Cooper had a whole thing on. Uh, based on a uh, newspaper series out of Clearwater, Florida, uh, about uh, about Scientology and the mm-hmm. violence uh, that they say that the leader has done on others. Yeah. Uh, it's, been, uh, it, it's been nasty, but I think uh, the first major news organization to take them on was Time Magazine. Uh, that article, Scientology, A Cult of Greed, back in 1990 was the first one, but I think publicly – the tipping point, as I said, was science, was the South Park episode because their membership in the U.S. has started dropping since then. Um, there's probably uh-huh. 50,000 Scientologists in America. Out of 300 million people, 50,000 is not a whole lot of, of Scientologists. Uh, I've seen, and I was going to talk to one one day, but they were busy setting up a tent, and I couldn't get a chance to talk to them. But uh, there's just there are just not that many around to talk to. I sometimes wonder if I'm wasting my time. Uh, Like outside of America? Well, England and Australia uh, outlawed Scientology for a while uh, back in the 60s. And because of that, uh, the people, you know, that made more people curious about what it was they were doing. And, you know, if you're a young, rebellious person, then you get interested. So Australia is quite uh, fertile ground for Scientology. But. Probably the U.S. and in particular California. I mean, their their uh, most dedicated branch, the Sea Organization, is based down in Clearwater, Florida, but the uh, uh, world headquarters is in California, in Hem- Hemet, California. They call it International you, Base or Gold Base. Do you, Do you think it's going to continue, to, or do you think it's going to start to grow again, or do you in America, or do you think it's going to pretty much take some more hits with all the public criticism and, and go away or, you know, 10, 15 years from now, where do you think Scientology will be? I think, I think either it's policies of attack will change in which case they become another self-help type religion, which will always have a a core group and uh, continue on in small numbers. But if they're uh, if they're as their attack critics uh, policy gets exposed, if they don't change that, I think it'll it'll eventually disappear. You know the uh, the hacktivist group on the internet, Anonymous, has declared war on Scientology. They, uh, wow. Uh, yeah, and the reason was that Tom Cruise uh, video with him extolling the virtues of, of Scientology that they made for uh, International Association of Scientologists annual gala. Uh, was put up on somebody put it up on YouTube and Scientology sued and had it removed and that uh, got the uh, uh, anonymous upset and they declared war on Scientology. Wow, that is nuts. Yeah, so, 
Yeah, they seem to have lost their uh, zeal lately. I don't. I haven't been seeing them doing much lately for a while. They were really harassing them, but uh, uh, they haven't done a, a whole lot uh, with uh, uh, Scientology lately that I've seen. Well, very good, uh, Don. It's been a, been a very good show, very enlightening. Uh, you seem to know an awful lot about it. Uh, you're also versed, I guess, in uh, like the Church of Satan and Satanism. Uh, not a whole lot on that particular topic. I, uh, you know, uh, Joe witnesses Mormons, uh, Islam, uh, Scientology, uh, groups like that, science and faith type issues, those sorts of things. Okay, right. Well, um, very good, and uh, I know we went a few minutes over, folks, but uh, it'll be on the podcast, and really appreciate you, Don. You did a, did a great job. You're definitely a wealth of knowledge, and uh, look forward to having you back on the show again soon. All righty, and I'll bring the iced teas. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I could hear you. It sounded like you, were, uh, you ran out of iced tea there. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's All basically it, yeah. Yeah, Melissa says to tell you hello. So, well, tell her hello, and we love her, and uh, hope to see you guys soon. Absolutely. All right, Don. God bless. You too, brother. God bless. All right, folks. Uh, it's been another edition of Theology Matters. Go to face uh, Facebook. Uh, look up Theology Matters with the Palouse. You'll find our past episodes. Uh, again, went a little a bit long tonight, but it was worth it getting that information, and uh, we'll be up on the podcast. So share and uh, let your friends know, and uh, we look forward to seeing you guys again next week. God bless. <laughs>